0: Well, good morning, um, welcome, welcome, welcome back, missed you, um, good to see you guys this morning. Um, I'm really excited about this season that we're now stepping into. You see a few more empty chairs than normal, you guys remember like a few weeks ago when we were like packed to the wall? Um, that means we're in summer, it means that some students have went home, um, we miss them, love you. If you're listening to this podcast, which you're probably not, we miss you, come back. <laughs> but you're not listening, but if you are. Uh Anyway, but I'm excited for summer, man. I'm excited. I think that summertime, you know, April, if you think about it, we actually had kind of a lot moving and shaking. We were saying goodbye to our campus coordinator, Sarah, welcoming our new campus coordinator, Taylor. We had Easter. We had eight baptisms, fuel bags, all these things were going on. And summer typically brings a little bit of a slower, uh, more predictable, I guess, Sunday to Sunday thing. And uh, I've been talking to our staff and our team, and we're gonna be looking for more opportunities for us to connect outside of Sundays, uh, just for us to continue to grow closer as a family. Isn't it funny how hard it can be to just like make friends at a church where everyone already is? (laughs) Look at y'all. There's so many of y'all, and some of y'all feel kind of alone in this room. Isn't that weird? It's like there's so many people. And so we just want to do our part and and find ways for us to connect. So just looking forward to, to figuring that out together. Want us to keep growing closer as a family. If you missed it, there were a ton of groceries on the porch this morning. And if you're new here, um, those are for the students at Aiken Elementary. Once a month, we bring fuel bags, a bunch of snacks for basically 86 students to take home with them to feed them for several weekends in that month. And so this is our last Fuel Bag Sunday for the summer because school's coming to a close. And so celebrate with us by hanging after the teaching, and assembling fuel bags together with us. We'll have instructions, we'll have a team that'll help you do it, but make sure you stick around because we're gonna make fuel bags for like 86 students. I think we're gonna make, Muriel, can you hear, is she teaching? I don't know how many we're making, probably like 200 and something. So we need all hands on deck. Y'all hear me? So stay after, make some fuel bags with me, it's beautiful outside, okay. Um, last thing I wanna say before we get into our teaching, which I am geeked about, um, we have a uh, prayer at nine every Sunday. And if you're new here and don't know about this rhythm, um, a few months ago, we decided to remove our second gathering at 11 a.m., move our worship to 10 a.m. so that we could have an hour of prayer at nine. And um, it's very free-flowing. There is calm music, some candles lit, some scriptures on the slides, and that's it. You just get to come and sit and be still, and if you wanna journal or read or pray or just listen for the Lord, it's all up to you. And I just wanna remind you that that rhythm still exists, and it may not be forever, As our church continues to grow and fill up, we may have to problem solve that growth at some point. And so I'm not sure how long we get to keep this really awesome prayer rhythm as long as we're in this building. And so I just wanted to let you know, man, take advantage of this season. At 9 a.m., come pray. Or at 920, if you only want like 25 minutes of prayer. But come pray. It's a place for you to, to enjoy some silence, some stillness, and maybe the more you still your heart, you'll sense the movement of God in your life. It's a place to, to come and pray, to confess, to let God speak into identity in your life. It's a, com- a place to, to bring your spouse, to pray with them for 45 straight minutes. I don't know if you have ever just prayed with your spouse for 45 minutes. You'll get a lot done in your marriage. Bring your friends, pray with them. If you're like, I don't got nothing to pray for, come here and pray for our church for 45 straight minutes. Ask God to do miracles in Hillsborough Village. Do me a favor. You know, I would love that. I'm just kidding. That's, it has nothing to do with me. That was selfish. I'm sorry. Anyway, come to prayer. That's my announcements. All right. We're back into 1 Samuel, and today we're covering a lot of ground. We're covering chapters 9 through 15. So the format's going to look different, and some of you guys are going to be relieved because usually we ask y'all a ton of questions and ask you to respond, and maybe that feels a little pressure packed. Today, you're getting a traditional just sermon. I'm just going to preach at you <laughs> for, for like 25 minutes because we're covering six chapters, and we're going to meet King Saul. So we're going to be introduced to the first ever king of, you see that? Introducing King Saul, right there it is. Matches my shirt. That was an accident. Um, yeah, so just to recap where we've been, last week was chapter eight and the transition for the nation of Israel from a theocracy to a monarchy has been made official. They've requested a king and we're gonna find a king, okay? And so we're gonna cover basically the beginning and the middle-ish of King Saul's journey from when he's chosen, instituted, and then some of the key moments in his early reign as king of Israel. the problem with covering six chapters, not the problem, a conflict that I have with covering six chapters of 1 Samuel is it's kind of hard to pick and choose a specific verse. So for the most part, I'm just going to walk you through these six chapters and you can just trust me. It's all in there. Uh, read it for yourself. Please get into the weeds of it. I have found that the more nerdy you get in some of these chapters, the more like mind blowing God can be in and the, and the story of Israel can be. So um, anyway, all right. A little caveat, a little nuance to this. We cannot bring our Western lens to this story. And here's what I mean by that. Specifically, we can tend to think in like hero-villain categories, right? We're quick to go, okay, who's the one getting it right? Who's the one getting it wrong? And if we do that, I think we'll remove some important nuance to a man like King Saul. If we bring our hero-villain lens to this story, well, then Saul is the villain, all right, and someone like Samuel or King David who's who we know is coming up. He's about to sling those stones at Goliath, right and save the day. And quickly we go, okay, Saul villain, David hero, he'll be here soon. And I don't think that's a fair way to read this passage. I think we need to be a little bit more open-minded about that, specifically with the life of Saul. In fact, right now before we even get into his story, I want you to do me a favor. Pull out your phone, open your notes. And I want you to write down, I'm I'm asking you to do this, it's awkward, do it, I'm staring at you, come on, don't make me sweat. Um, Pull out your phone, write down three words that you would use to describe King Saul. And if you're going, I'm too ignorant, welcome to the club, just guess. Write down three words that you would use to describe King Saul before we get into his journey, before we get into his life story. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to do this. Three words, King Saul. Ten seconds. All right. I think that as we we cover Saul's story, We're gonna notice a lot in him, at least I I noticed a lot in him. And there's some words that I think will describe Saul that I wouldn't have written down in this exercise that we just did. I wrote down, I think we're gonna learn that Saul is humble at times, shy, timid. He's also gonna be bold, he's nervous, he's scared, he's honorable and dishonorable. Sometimes it feels like at the exact same time. He's egotistical and irrational, just like me. I don't know what that joke was. Ignore it. Let's move on. Saul is going to, I think he's a man that's given great responsibility, and he just, he comes so close at times, but he never quite understands the weight and the consequences of his decisions as the appointed leader of Israel and i want to help us feel the like almost it feels like you were so close to actually not doing too bad as the king of israel but you keep kind of falling short i think he forgets that his greatest responsibility as the anointed king of israel is to obey the lord's instructions as simple as that and at the end of the day he just kind of misses it but that would be over an oversimplification if we just left it at that he just didn't obey god and so today i want to kind of get into the weeds of it so Let's start in chapter nine. I titled this portion just Humble Beginnings. The Humble Beginnings of Saul. So in chapter nine, we learn that Samuel, at the direction of the Lord, remember Samuel? This book is 1 Samuel. He's priest, judge, prophet, kind of all those things. He's driven by the Lord to anoint Saul. Who is Saul? He's the son of a man named Kish. That name's kind of a vibe. (laughs) Kish, a wealthy landowner. So safe to say, probably a part of the ruling class. From the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a powerful tribe. Fun fact, the Apostle Paul, also from the tribe of Benjamin. But all you need to know is that was a powerful tribe amongst the the 12 tribes. Also physically jacked, built, head and shoulders taller, than everyone else. Tanner, stand up. almost I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I didn't plan that. <laughs> You're like 6'3". He's probably Tanner's size. Just look at Tanner later. Be like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> anyway, that joke, we'll, we'll edit that out in the pod. <laughs> no, we won't. Um, all that to say, we got a wealthy landowner from the ruling class. He's tall in stature, So quite literally, Saul is a rich, young ruler. I mean, it's kind of who he is. And on the exterior, I think kind of a story of Saul's life. On the exterior, he resembles all the qualities you might want in a king. Someone comfortable with power. He physically stands over everyone else. He looks the role, okay? So Samuel approaches Saul and in Josh's words, says, hey, what do you think about being the first ever king of Israel? You won't find that in 1 Samuel. Saul says, whoa, how can you speak this way to me? That's his response. He doesn't respond going, I saw this coming. Rich family, I was always the fastest, strongest person. It makes sense that I'm the first king of Israel. He doesn't feel that way at all. He says, am I not a Benjaminite? from the least of the tribes of Israel. And it's not my clan, the humblest of clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me this way? So we get this shy, borderline fearful response from Saul. Whoa, 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 king of Israel. No, 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 not me. And it's even interesting, he calls the tribe of Benjamin like the humblest of tribes. I don't actually know what to do with that conflict because from what I understand the tribe of Benjamin was quite powerful. But regardless, what we get is a very humble response, not egotistical, not arrogant, not presumptuous. Instead, whoa, I'm unworthy of this calling. We skip forward two chapters, 1 Samuel 11. Samuel has gathered all of Israel together in one place. Why did he do that? To introduce them to the first king ever, King Saul. And a funny little thought, why did he have to gather all of Israel? Because there wasn't a printing press or internet. So quite literally, he had to go, everybody, I need you to remember his face because that is your king. So just in case someone else shows up to your town in a year and goes, I'm King Saul, you'll know the difference we hope, right? I was like kind of funny, like, don't forget what he looks like because this is the king and only he can say certain things, right? So he's like, this is King Saul, all right. And so there's this moment Remember chapter eight, Israel wants a king. Well, now we've got the first ever king and Samuel gets the band. All right, drum roll, drum roll. Samuel, big moment, big reveal. Introducing for the first time ever, King Saul. And he looks to his left and I kid you not, this is in the scriptures, Saul is nowhere to be found. He is physically missing (laughs) and they have to hunt him down. And you know where he's hiding? He's hiding behind what the word is, the baggage or the gear. I'll just say the suitcases. He's physically hiding behind the travel gear. They've all traveled, and he's about to get introduced, and his palms are sweating, and the curtain pulls back, and the stage is empty, and they go to the bathroom backstage, and he's just hurling at the toilet. He's just throwing up in the toilet, like, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Find another king. Like, this is the picture we get of Saul. Can you imagine this? The murmur of hundreds and thousands of people, like, sitting there waiting, like, what's this guy gonna look like? What's our king gonna sound like? What's this gonna be like? And Samuel, your great fearless leader goes, here he is. And you're like, Samuel, there's no one that you're pointing to. Someone ducked. Someone's ran and hidden. That's King Saul. That's the start we get with this guy. And it goes so terribly that chapter 11 ends with skeptics going, quote, how is this man going to save us? So the same people that went, we need a king. Make us like other nations. We get a king, well, this, this ain't gonna work. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know about this dude. Uh, he's, he looks a little nervous, the palms a little sweaty. So this is how we get introduced to Saul. These are the first few stories of, of Saul. Timid, shy, fearful, seemingly scared of the position. Right after this moment, immediately we're introduced to a conflict. This group of people called the Ammonites decide to wage war on Israel their neighbors to Israel, and I guess they they maybe they see the vulnerability of their people. And we learn very quickly that maybe Saul is shy of being the king of Israel, but he's not shy of being a really strong military leader. He immediately leads Israel into battle and conquers the Ammonites. And it goes so well that at the very end, soldiers are saying, find us anyone that doubted King Saul so we can put them to death. So there's quite a reversal. The inauguration did not go well. He was a little shy of the crowds, but once they get into war, Saul shines. And it goes so well that they go, let's destroy the people that ever doubted this man. And King Saul responds, no one's gonna die this day. The Lord has rescued us. So we learn strong military leader and also quite the politician. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal for the king of Israel just to behead some people that doubted him. People would have been like, that makes sense. That's how we handle beef, right? But King Saul says, no, no bloodshed. Preserve it. He knows how to befriend his enemies within his camp. All right. So there we go. Now we're gonna get into three critical moments that I think end up defining Saul's tenure as king. Especially his first, his first like third to half of being a king. So I'm going to tell you three quick stories. Are you guys still here? Because we're going to keep the nerd level stuff here. But I, I want you just to, you know what I'm saying? Come with me. All right. First Samuel 13. First, 1 uh, first Samuel 13, Saul disobeys Samuel's instruction about a burnt offering. So let me give you a little context. We get to chapter 13 and we learn a couple things. One, Jonathan is a person that exists. And he's the son of King Saul. So it feels safe to assume we've went 10, 20, maybe 30 years of of Saul being king? Well, Jonathan is quite the warrior, and he does something behind his father's back. He goes and assassinates a chief officer of the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch rival of the Israelites. So in other words, Saul's son Jonathan has just started a war with their rival, okay? It's pretty icy, At the time that this happens, keep up with me. We're about to start saying some weird words. At the time that this happens, Saul is in a place called Gilgal. He's in Gilgal. I don't know if that's how you say it. He's in Gilgal because Samuel told him, go to Gilgal, wait seven days. On the seventh day, I will show up and I will give you instruction. We're going to make a peace offering, a burnt offering. We're going to do something unto the Lord. Saul's like, great, Sam." That's the name I call you because we're close like that. Let's do that. Saul's in Gilgal. Here's what's changed. Now the Philistines want to kill everyone, okay? So it says the people of Israel are freaked out. They're scattering to different towns. They're going away from whatever towns border the Philistines because they know the Philistines are coming for bloodshed. The soldiers that are with Saul in Gilgal, the scriptures say, are fear are marked by fear and trembling. So Saul in Gilgal, watching his sundial, day seven, waiting for Samuel to show up, looks behind him, and all he sees in his army is fear. So he's feeling the pressure. The Philistines are close, they want blood, they will not spare anyone, and he's trying his best to obey Samuel's instruction here. But it's day seven, and Samuel's still not here to show him what to do, so what does Saul do? He makes the offering himself. Have you ever done something wrong and your parent didn't walk in until the minute you had completed the act and you were officially in sin and then the person shows up and is like, what are you doing? And you're like, why didn't you come five minutes ago? Well, I was thinking about doing the thing, you know? So you had to wait until I did it, didn't you? That's what happens to Saul. He makes the offering and as soon as it's done, Samuel shows up and goes, what are you doing? I told you wait seven days and then I would come and I would give you instruction. And how does Samuel respond to this moment of disobedience? In a word, harshly. He tells Saul, this is, the, this is actually kind of insane to say. He says, this is the end of your line. You have disobeyed my words and your sons will never see the throne. Literally your kingdom is over. And you're like, whew, I don't know. Philistines, ready for blood. It's day seven. Saul could have just skipped the offering and went straight to war, you know? At least he made an offering. You know, he tried really hard. It's a really harsh consequence. It reminds you of Moses. You guys might remember this really weird story in Numbers chapter 20. There's a moment where the people need water. Do you guys know what Moses' instruction was? Do you guys remember what God tells him to do to a rock? Yeah, to talk to it. Talk to that rock. Make it bring water. And Moses, like all of us, feels like an idiot. So he doesn't do it. <laughs> he takes his staff. He beats the rock. And water comes out. Do you guys remember the consequence? Yeah. Cody. All right. No more answers from you. Okay, we get it. I'm kidding. Uh, keep answering because it helps the awkward silence not exist. Um, God tells Moses because you've disobeyed me. You're not gonna see the promised land. This is the Moses that heard God at the burning bush, that went to Egypt in full confidence, and on behalf of God delivers the people out of Egypt, gets the 10 Commandments, come back down, false idol, breaks the 10 Commandments, goes back up, gets more 10 Commandments, leads the people faithfully, but he makes this one crucial mistake. He disobeys the instruction of God and the consequence It's pretty heavy. You're never going to enter the promised land that you've been faithfully leading your people to for decades. It's harsh. And it kind of shows us something about God's relationship with Israel's leaders. You start to learn the significance of Israel, a nation set apart to be a light to the nations. Israel is God's chosen people. And we quickly learn the weight on the leader of Israel is just different than the average human. There's a responsibility that the leader of Israel carries that is unlike other people. we see this with Saul. 1 Samuel 14, another story. Saul's gonna make a really rash vow. He's gonna give some really weird instructions. So his soldiers have just completed one battle and they're about to start another battle. A lot of battles in 1 Samuel. And in between battles, Saul really wants to win this battle, and he wants God on his side. And so he says, all right, everybody, man, great fighting. Good job. Killed a lot of people yesterday. Proud of you. Great job with the spear. That javelin, (laughs) you know, great job. Here's the rule for today. As we prepare for our next battle, okay, we're gonna fast. No one eat. I know you might be hungry because of all the war, but we're not gonna eat. And this was actually kind of a common approach. Kings would conjure up the divine by fasting before battle. So Saul says, I know what to do. We'll get God on our side. Let's fast. Jonathan enters the scene yet again. He hasn't heard about this vow. So what does Jonathan do? He starts eating some honey. I don't know what this looked like. Like, was it just like a, you know, I don't know, but he ate some. And the scriptures say that when he ate the honey, his eyes light up. He gets that caloric intake. He's like, whoa, I forgot how awesome eating is. This is great. But specifically, when scriptures say his eyes light up, it's trying to specify his mind gains clarity. The fog of hunger has been lifted and he can see clearly. He feels good. Soldiers come up to him. Jonathan. Jonathan do you not hear? Your dad, by the way, the king has made a rule. We are not supposed to be eating. We are fasting to win this battle. And Jonathan literally looks around and the scriptures say that Saul had muddied the vision of his soldiers, that his decree had left his soldiers point of clarity, their mindset, their vision was muddied like pond water that give a good image, they can't think straight. And Jonathan's looking around going, for lack of a better term, my dad was foolish for this. Why did he tell you guys not to eat? You desperately need food. And he ends his little dialogue by saying, the victory will be much less great because of my dad's rash vow. Because he's made this weird instruction that has left us weak and vulnerable, we're gonna win, but it's not gonna be as good of a victory as it would have been. So they go to battle. They win a victory. But the ugliest part of the whole thing comes after they've won. It says the soldiers are so hungry. They're so malnourished. They begin preparing food. They begin cooking meat. But they begin mixing blood with it, which is against the law of God. So in their haste, because they're so hungry, you ever been so hungry you can taste the food before you've even made it yet, and you're just salivating? Man, they're salivating. And they begin to make the food in ways that break the law of God. And so Saul has to come back in and go, everybody stop. Hey, stop, stop cooking that filet. We're doing it wrong. You're disobeying the law of God. Why? Why are they disobeying the law of God? Because they're so hungry. Why are they so hungry? Because Saul has made a rash vow to force the hand of God to be on his side. He goes, we should fast after one battle and before the next. Again, we see this pattern. Saul taking things in his own hands for seemingly good reasons. Let's get God on our side. All right, number three. 1 Samuel 15. God gives a really harsh instruction to Saul. He says, it's time to go to war against a group of people called the Amalekites. Feels random if you're just reading 1 Samuel, like, okay, why are we going to war with the Amalekites? Who's Amalekite? Who's Amala, whatever the name would be. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of Israel flee Egypt. This same group of people, the Amalekites, wage war on Israel. They've got a lot of blood on their hands. If you remember this story, You ever heard the story where Moses has to lift his arms up? And as long as he's lifting his arms up, Israel's winning the battle. And the minute his arms go down, they lose the battle. And so when they realize that, they start lifting up Moses' arms for him so they can win the battle. That's against the Amalekites. So same people group. Well, we learn God has judged this people group. And he tells Saul, go to war and wipe them out. And it's kind of this like God has judged holier, beyond our understanding moment. He goes, every person, every living creature, gone. Don't keep any of them for yourself, wipe them away. Okay, Saul leads them into battle, goes to war, kills everyone and everything except King Agag, weird name, and the best of the oxen, the sheep, and the fattened calves, the meat, the goods, right? So Saul almost obeys God's instruction to the fullest, but he spares. First Samuel 15, 11. God sees this disobedience and says this quote, I regret making Saul king. God watched Saul's half obedience. and says, I regret it. I regret this moment. It says after that, Samuel cries and is angry all night long. You get this picture of a man who loves his nation, who loves the Lord, his God. He's reflecting back on the moment when Israel first requested a king and he was like, don't do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. He remembers God telling him, grant their requests, give them what they're asking for. He remembers giving them the warning in chapter eight, guys, when you get a king, here's all the things that you're not gonna love about it. And they said, we want a king anyway. And you can just see Samuel remembering all of that, and just being like, ah, 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 like, <laughs> I want to time travel and undo all of this. What a mess. How are we in such a mess? And now God regrets the king we have, but he's still our king. And ah, and he's just upset. And he goes up to Saul, confronts him. Saul, what is going on? You've disobeyed the command of the Lord. And here's how Saul responds: Hey, hold up. I spared all these animals so that I could make sacrifices. That's why I've got the oxen and the sheep and the calves. We're going to make sacrifices to the Lord. What's Saul doing again? We're going to get God's favor on our side, dude. Chill out. And perhaps the most damning scripture for Saul that exists is in 1 Samuel 15:22. It happens to be a poem. I don't know how that works if Samuel in the middle of a conflict was just like, all right, here's some poetry for you. (laughs) Marinate on this and snap if you like it. You know, I don't know. But this is what he says. Listen to these words to Saul. Remember, Saul's just said, I was gonna make a burnt offering with all those animals. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so in this moment, we come face to face with the spirit in Saul. That every time he finds himself in disobedience, he's got this, but, 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 spirit. He's got this, no, but hold on, let me explain, spirit. That spirit you get when you know your parents have caught you in something you shouldn't be doing but you're nine, and so you think in all your brilliance, and all your nine years of living, you can conjure up all the reasons to make it all make sense to your parents, only to retell the story when you're 30 and be like, what was I even saying? That made no sense, you know? <laughs> Saul's got the spirit of let me explain. Here's the good intentions. Here's what I was trying to do. But every time he's missing the point, he is not obeying the Lord. Like he just isn't obeying The Lord, it reminds me of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. He's over at a tax collector's house. He's eating with sinners, a bunch of people that Pharisees or the religious elite would not associate with. They were dirty, they had no respect for the law of God, and they disassociated themselves with them. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees while he's at dinner with all these sinners, and he literally says, Go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And to a group of people where sacrifice was one of the most important things you do in Judaism, atoning for sins, like I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus knew the Pharisees had this tendency to have the word of God on their lips, but far from their heart. The Pharisees had a tendency to speak about obedience without actually obeying. They had a tendency to say lofty prayers and to make sacrifices with disobedient hearts. And Jesus was not okay with religious leaders knowing the word, but not obeying the word. And I see this here with Saul. He knows God's instructions. And time and time again, he claims pure motives. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, is he obeying the Lord? It's tough how much complexity and nuance can leave us to such a simple conclusion. Is Saul obeying the Lord? No, he's not. And in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel has to tell Saul, God has rejected you. And the scripture says that Saul confesses his sin, he acknowledges his sin, and that Samuel never sees Saul again. And he grieves Saul until he dies. So this prophet slash judge slash priest who speaks all these words from the Lord and they all come true, how does his life come to an end? Grieving the king of Israel who could never quite understand how important it was that he heed the instruction of the Lord. And so that concludes 1 Samuel 9 through 15. That's the first we hear of Saul. Before we get into the Saul and David conflict, where Saul's hurling a javelin at David while he's playing the harp, like the most gentle instrument of all time, (laughs) just getting, you know. Before we get there, this is Saul. So how do we feel about Saul? What are we learning? Those three words you wrote down, do they still apply? Do they still feel the same? I think when we, we learn about Saul, we have to just understand how complex and messy this was and how sad it is. Because really at the beginning, it felt so hopeful. I mean, what else do you want besides a real tall, strong guy from a rich family who's timid, who's humble, who's almost afraid of the throne? You're like, that's the guy. This guy's humble. It starts out well, right? And before I leave you to reflect on your own, I want to give you a couple of takeaways that I had from this story in chapters 9 through 15. One, I think we learned that God's instructions always supersede circumstance, God's instructions are timeless. If it's instructions or circumstance that are gonna dictate our steps, instructions from God must win. That's a lesson. The instruction of God on your life must prevail over your present circumstance. I've just said something that is much easier said than done. If we look down on Saul, because his circumstances rattled his cage. If we look down on him because out of fear, he made impulsive decisions that hurt him and hurt other people. If we look down on him because he tried to do something for God, but he may have accidentally been selfish and a little controlling. If we look down on Saul at any point of his adventure, of his journey, we completely miss the point. We are Saul, we're him. And I know I spent a whole week teaching you not to read scripture that way, (laughs) where you make the character all about you, but we'll do that for just a second, forgive me. We're Saul. We know what it's like to go, I'm gonna obey God. I'm gonna do what God says. I'm gonna listen to his voice. I'm gonna obey his instruction. I'm not gonna be like that pastor or that parent or that friend. I'm gonna be different. But then circumstances turn up It gets hot. You don't know where your answers are coming from. You start losing clarity over who you even are, who God is, and how easy is it in that moment to reach out for control, to reach out for, I know what's best for me. I know what I can do. I know what I can do that will simultaneously make me feel safe and comfortable, and also God probably wants it too. Like, (laughs) surely those are the same thing, right? It's much easier said than done to heed God's instruction despite circumstance. The second thing I notice is more of a question that I think we should ask and really ponder and meditate on with the life of Saul. Is Saul actually seeking relationship with God or the benefits of relationship with God? Because if you're like me, when you slowly walk through his story, I actually kept empathizing with him. He felt very genuine to me he always seemed to be very concerned about the favor of God. But then when you step back and look at the big picture, he always seems to be taking things into his own hands, hoping that it gives him some version of cosmic good luck. It always feels like he's like, if I do this, I get God's favor. Saul has this rhetoric of, I was doing it for God. I was doing it for God. I was doing it for God. And I think it begs the question, Saul, you were doing it for God, According to who? I almost want Saul to go sit with a therapist and have the therapist go, hey, who told you you were doing these things according to God? And make him answer the question. Because I think the pattern we're actually seeing is not so much a genuine heart, seeking the sweet heart of God to lead him and his people. It feels like he's really doing things so that God's mercy and grace, good things, will just default be on his side. He wants to win. He wants to be preserved. He wants God on his side because that means victory. And as he he yearns, as as he wants, as he longs for God's victory, he misses the heart of God throughout it all. And I don't know if you've ever been here where you've done God's work with no interest if you're actually where he wants you to be. I don't know if you've ever been around the activities of the follower of Jesus, but you weren't actually interested in God's heart for you at all. Have you ever been around the activities of God, but found your heart reluctant to? God, are you actually saying something to me? Is there actually anything you want to do in my life? My hands are open. I think it's easier said than done to consume yourself with the activities of God without ever actually having a heart open to what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. And I think we find Saul here. Lastly, the crazy part about this whole thing is where this all starts. It doesn't start with Saul. It starts last week in chapter eight, when the people say, make us like other nations. Make us like everybody else and give us a king. Where the people of Israel forget their heritage, forget their a people set apart and instead look to their right and look to their left and go, we wanna look like them, give us a king. And even though God says this is against me, they say, give us a king anyway. And it starts this domino effect that's so tragic. And so now I wanna pause my end of the conversation. You've gotten like 80% of a talk. And I wanna give you three minutes to reflect on your own. We're gonna have some questions on the screen. And for three minutes, take 30 seconds per question and just write down an answer. And then after that, we're gonna circle up in groups of three or four and we'll just do like rapid fire. We'll just share in a circle. What are some things you wrote down? What are some things that you thought about? But let's take some time to reflect on this new version of King Saul that we've learned about this morning. And then we'll talk together.